welcome to True Girls, the podcast where two girlfriends tell you the true stories of fascinating women, both past and present. Stay true. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to finally be back after what has felt like an eternity. Yeah. I think we last recorded in April. I think so. It was a while ago. And we're so sorry we haven't been recording. Life got really, really busy for Mm -hmm. the both of us. But um, we've really appreciated everyone still downloading and Mm -hmm. listening and, uh, you know, seeing that still, even though we haven't actively been putting out episodes, people are still downloading our our podcast Mm -hmm. and listening to us. It's just really, really cool and really, really sweet. And we just really appreciate it. It's, it's so kind and nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, why haven't we, um, (laughs) um, been recording for so long? That's the age old question. Um, Kayla. Well, (laughs) I may have gotten a little distracted, (laughs) By this little thing called being pregnant. Ah, yes. Yeah, so I think, gosh, how how pregnant was I in April? Um, so I, Do you remember? I literally just went back and listened to the episode, and you said Cade was the size of a um, box of, like, dryer sheets. <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, so that is a long time ago. Cade is um, full size baby a now, full ass human now. He is he is here mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. So September seventh, mm-hmm. I had a beautiful, beautiful baby boy. He's so cute. He is really he is really stinking cute. I'm pretty obsessed with him. I think he's the greatest thing. I mean, he's for sure he's the greatest thing I've ever done. Right. Um. And I'm amazed that somehow my body managed to produce this perfect little human. Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel so lucky that I'm his mom, you know? Yeah. It, it's been it's been wild. He's a pretty good baby. He is. Auntie Mel Mel spends <laughs> quite a bit of time with the baby. Um, what was your what was your nickname for him while I was pregnant with him? Mm, I called him Moose. And why did we call him Moose? Because Canada. Because my last name is Canada. <laughs> Moose? I don't know. It just kind of Um. Oh, no, it didn't. Because <laughs> you said that every time you saw me, I just looked bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> like a moose. <laughs> so you called him Moose. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like me. Don't worry. I didn't forget. I did not forget. Yeah. I still kind of call him Moose sometimes. Like... If I'm, like, walking around a store with Ben or something and I see something, I'll call him Moose. I'll be like, we should get him for Moose. It's He's weird. Like, That's not his name. I <laughs> rarely ever call him Cade. I call him, like, my baby, my right. boy, my son, mm-hmm. um, you know, my guy. Mm-hmm. But I rarely am like, hello, That's Cade. Me. I'm yeah. always like, hi, my baby. Right. My, my main nickname for him, though, is my belly buddy. Call him my belly buddy. That's cute. Because he lived in my belly for for nine months. My sweet little my sweet little baby. Um, but yeah, it was it was a uh, interesting end of my pregnancy. I um, swelled up like a balloon. I was super puffy. Like my feet were like bricks. They were huge. Um, and I was just so ready. Like I was so ready mm-hmm. to get get the baby out. Because um, yeah. you know. Third trimester during the summer in Florida is something else. Yeah. And so 
His due date was September 6th, and he did not come. He was so content. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the doctor, and she was like, let's induce. And I was like, cool. And then um, we're in the hospital for like six hours and some complications. And so one smooth C-section later, (laughs) Cade was gently lifted into the world with a full head of dark hair and... uh, Trey and I both wept. Yeah. Uh, like, as soon as we heard him cry. Yeah. Trey and I started crying. Because. Like, it's alive. Yeah, and, you know, you just, you've gone through nine months of this anticipation and waiting, mm-hmm. and all you want is for your baby to be okay. And to right. hear to hear them crying, which means their breathing is, like, right. the greatest sound mm-hmm. in the world. It's just like, oh, my God, thank goodness. And now he's here. He's breathing. And he's great. He poops, like, big old poops now. <laughs> but he's sleeping through the night. We have made oh, it. That's so exciting. I know. There. I know. It's it's pretty great. I mean, like, he'll wake up and we'll have to go and settle and, like, put a binky in. But it's not like we're waking up and feeding him. Right. And we're up for hours and hours and hours. Right. So. <gasps> we should tell everybody the fun thing we did. What was the fun thing we did? What's a thing? great bonding experience for us. Are we talking about the? Are we talking about the 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 children of the corn? Is that what you're talking about? Children of the corn. What is that? <laughs> the fall festival we went to. Oh, we did. We went to. A, we, that's not what I was thinking okay. of. But we did go to a fall festival where we had to do a corn maze. So we're like pushing the baby in a stroller through a corn maze, and our husbands oh, are like. That was a good time. Well, so my husband started leading. Trey started leading. Um. And, you know, we love giving Trey a hard time. Mm -hmm. That's Melinda's, that's her husband, Benny. Like, that's his favorite thing to do. Yeah. Uh, And so eventually Melinda and I took over and we got us, we got us out of the maze. No, I was talking about, um, Linda and I went and got tattoos. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, we had been talking about it for like forever. And then I got pregnant. So obviously we didn't do it while I was pregnant. But then I, you know, had the baby. And now that I'm not pregnant, we were like, Let's get tattoos. They don't match or anything. No, they're not matching tattoos. We're not that weird. Yet. Yet. In like 10 years. I would be lying (laughs) if I said that I haven't thought about it. I know. I thought about it too. I was like, hmm. Have I I said anything or acted on it? No, but yes, I have. I have have thought about it. When we reach that level of friendship, we will have ascended. I mean, (laughs) like, into like a new level. Yes. So... Why don't you tell them about your tattoo? Because I think yours is really cool. Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, I think I've mentioned it on here before, but I did Rocky Horror Show for, like, seven years um, at a theater in our local area. Um, And I played Magenta. And I could do it for another seven years. Um, And, unfortunately, uh, they're actually, they're still going. They're, like, on year, well, this coming year will be year 10. Um, a few, you know, a couple of years ago, I had to stop doing the show. Um, so I really, really miss it. And I've been wanting to get some kind of Rocky Horror tattoo um, because it was such a huge part of my life for so long. And I also just, it's weird. It's one of those like weird movies. If you've ever seen it, it makes zero sense. But at the same time, it has a lot of, like, underlying meaning about it. You know, there's a lot Mm -hmm. about acceptance in there. There's a lot about, um, 
just things. And one of the, like, probably more famous lines from the movie is in a song. And um, it says, don't dream it, be it. So I got that tattooed in, like, rainbow lettering on my wrist. It's really cool. And I really, really love it. I've been wanting to get a Rocky Horror tattoo to commemorate. I mean, most of my tattoos are commemorating time. Like, I have a hidden Mickey on my foot from when I did entertainment at Disney. Um, So, and, like, on my back, I have um, All the World's a Stage, you know, just from, like, my theater life. And I also have, like, a... It's a bass clef and a treble clef that form a heart Mm -hmm. um, in color on my back. And that's just, you know, for my life in music. And I have Mm -hmm. a piece on my leg that is a snake with stargazer lilies. And the stargazer lilies are my cat, Lily. Because I love her pieces and I, you know, want her with me. I'm probably going to get, when she goes to the, you know, big kitty litter in the sky, I'm probably going to get like an actual like cat tattoo of some sort. For yeah. her, because I love her to pieces. I've had her since she was, like, four months old. And she's, like, almost 12. Wow. And I love her. Yeah. She's my baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then the snake is me. Like, I'm a, like, my Chinese symbol is a snake, so. You were born in the year of the snake? Mm-hmm. I was born in the year of the rooster. <laughs> or, wait. <laughs> what? <laughs> what kind of, what the other, what kind of sound is a rooster maker? Do you like the cockadoodle do? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I did. You did caca. Like just caca. <laughs> Listen, it's been a long, it's been a long week. It's been a long time since April. Oh, um, so my tattoo, I got a, oh, yeah. I got a sun. It's like made out of lines and dots. It's not like your traditional cartoon mm-hmm. sun. It's a little bit more abstract. Yeah. Um, but I got it for your my son. son. But it's more than that. He literally is like sunshine to me. Like, mm-hmm. all I have to do is look at him and the world feels brighter and mm-hmm. I feel brighter. And he he's just, he radiates this warmth. Like, he started smiling. I'm going to, like, cry thinking mm-hmm. about it. He just has <laughs> this, like, adorable little smile. And it, he crinkles his eyes when he smiles. Mm-hmm. And it just, like... It just radiates love and warmth, and it's just so sweet. And, like, he's my little sunshine, you know? Mm -hmm. And I I sang that song to him, You Are My Sunshine. I sang Mm -hmm. it to him when he was in my belly. I sing Mm -hmm. it to him now. It's the same song my grandmother sang to me when I was little. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of meaning behind it. But my my tattoos are the same. Like, I have the sun for for Cade. I have mountains on my shoulder, three mountains Mm -hmm. for my mom, dad, and brother. Mm -hmm. I have... um, I have... Lavender on my foot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is for my family in North Carolina, because we had lavender in front of our house mm-hmm. growing up. And then um, my one like show tattoo is I have uh, "To Thine Own Self Be True," mm-hmm. which is Shakespeare, but for me it's something rotten, which right. is you know the show that literally changed my life. And mm-hmm. then I have a cross on my ankle for my faith. So those yeah. are those are all of mine. I know everybody was interested yeah. in hearing I know, about, all our about our tattoos. Um, hey, they're permanently on our bodies. We're proud of them. Yeah. And we our... love them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's true. Like, once you get a tattoo, you become addicted. And, like, yeah. it's so much less scary, like, yeah. thinking about getting another. Yeah. You know? And I'm not, like, I don't want to, like, cover my entire body or anything in them. But I will probably never stop getting them. 
like, I mean, I've, I've had, like, a few years in between each one that yeah, I've gotten. Yeah, me too. But, like, I, um, I will never stop. I'll find something else that I want to commemorate. Yeah. Um, something that happened to me. You, you know, know? If, if Trey and I do have another child in the future, mm-hmm. um, I would definitely, you know, want to get one for that child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, kind of like a list in my head of things I would, right. I would want to get. On top of that, I have, like, oh, here's another piercing that I want. Like, I would love to get my nose pierced. Not the septum, but, like, just, like, a little stud yeah. or, like, a little hoop. I wanted to do that, too. Um, but the idea of getting my nose pierced freaks me out more than the idea of a tattoo. Yeah. Because a needle just kind no. of sticks your body, whereas with a nose piercing, it literally goes through your yeah. face. You know, your nose, which is on your face. So that yeah. that freaks me out, mm-hmm. I think, more. Yeah, then I think it freaks me out a little bit more. Yeah, than, well, because like I don't know, like when you're getting a tattoo, to me it just feels like someone's like scratching something into your skin, which is a little bit less of a like. When Melinda was getting her <laughs> tattoo, Melinda was literally sitting there like, la la la, everything's fine, <laughs> I'm fine, and. I was like, this girl. Because then when I went to get mine, I was like, don't cry. Don't make a sound. Let's try and have a normal conversation. I do. I have, like, um, I have, like, a really high tolerance for pain. I mean, I do, too. Yeah. Like, I had a C-section, and I never... Yeah. I think the strongest drug I took was, like, Tylenol. Like, I never took right. any Oxy. I never took any yeah. Percocet. Like, I only took mm-hmm. acetaminophen and Tylenol after, yeah. after my surgery. Um, like, I used to get cavities filled. No Novocaine. I've never had a cavity. Like, I just... Oh, wow. <laughs> Didn't I say that like, so... I think... I said that so <laughs> snooty. You're like, um, I've never had... She even did the hair toss. I did. I tossed her hair. Toss I was like, toss. I've never had a cavity. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I mean, I haven't in a long time since I was a kid, but I definitely had them when I was a kid. And my... Um, my Actually, my pediatric dentist was, like, to the point where he was, like, telling my parents, like, you have to take her somewhere else. Because I literally can't. Because I would scream bloody murder when he Ooh. would try to, like... The needle in my gums yeah. is what weirded me out more than the pain that of getting freaky, something though. filled. That's freaky, So, like, I think I, like, slowly developed this high tolerance for pain throughout my life. Just yeah. because, like, I was sitting there getting cavities filled with, like, no numbing. Yeah, that makes sense. You know? But that makes sense. now I'm just kind of like, whatever, pain. It's normal. <laughs> it's normal part of life. I could see you, like, kind of as a little, a little masochist over there. Yeah, maybe. I could... I can see that. Yeah. I can, I can, I can picture it in my head. Yeah. I I'm think. also a glutton for punishment, so. Correct. It tracks. Correct. I purposefully do things to hate, hate myself. Yeah. It's I like mean, a, I think we all kind of do that. <laughs> it's like a thing. I feel like that's I'm like, a, why do I do this to myself? Why am I the way that I am? I, I don't know. I think that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> to myself. Um, so we have a new fun added element to our show. We do. Because I am now no longer pregnant. Yes. So one of the things we've done is we... So our husbands are little bartenders. Mm-hmm. Um, Melinda's husband was actually a bartender. And a, he's a very talented mixologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because our husbands are best friends and secretly in love, yeah. uh, my <laughs> husband has also very much gotten into bartending and mixology. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, they love making drinks. They love trying new concoctions. So we were like, hey, why don't you guys 
make us drinks for when we record. Mm-hmm. And we'll do, like, we'll try different drinks and drink them as we talk about these women. So, mm-hmm. uh, Melinda, you know what this drink is because I've already forgotten. Yes. Um, so this was made by Trey. And he made us, um, I don't remember what he called it, but it's an old-fashioned, but it's made with Applejack, which is um, like an apple-flavored Jack Daniels, um, black walnut bitters, and simple syrup. So it's just an old-fashioned, but it just has like some fun flavors in there. It smells, when you smell it, it smells like um, like maple. Like it smells like pancakes. Oh, it does. But like... I mean, the black walnut bitters is probably what gives it that kind of maple-y scent, but... So if you check out our show notes, we'll have the recipe so -hmm. that if you'd like to make a drink and drink along with us... Cheers. Cheers to you, lady. (laughs) And to the pod. (laughs) And to the baby. And to the baby. And to the baby. (laughs) It feels so good to be back. Can I just say that? it does. Like... Yeah, I've missed... I've missed talking to you in this setting. Mm -hmm. I've missed... I don't know talking to the hypothetical listeners that I hope are out there some of Actually, whom we know not. some of whom we don't they're know not. But we're just talking to ourselves in the microphone you know <laughs> talk I would be fine with that because I feel too. like it's a, a like a time capsule of our friendship so even if nobody listens it's kind of nice knowing that like our oh yeah our little conversations are in like out there in 30 the world. years when our husbands leave us for each other Correct. Um, we will be listening to this and be like, remember? Remember back when we were young whippersnappers and we knew this was going to happen. And we were taught we had that podcast. I, so I was, um, I was sick a couple of weeks ago. I have a new job. I am a part-time drama teacher at the elementary school I used to teach at. So I'm back in the world of education, which is really exciting. But, you know, being around kids for the first time in a long time, my immune system was like, hello. And so um, I got pretty sick to the point where, like, I had no voice at all. It was completely okay, gone. Yeah. So I was hitting up Starbucks and getting the medicine ball, if you've mm-hmm. ever had that. I was getting it, like, two a day to try and yeah. to try and soothe my voice because, I mean, there was nothing there. And it's really hard having a baby and not being able to, like, right. soothe them okay. with your voice because a lot of my soothing for him comes from me singing or talking to him. And so... Right. Um, But I was walking into Starbucks and these two badass bougie old ladies in a minivan like roll up with their big old sunglasses and like you can tell these two women have seen some shit and they have like been together (laughs) through the long haul and I was like, oh, Oh. that's not me and Melinda one day. (laughs) Like, because I mean, they were like, you know, you can tell these women were like, Let's get our Starbucks and let's do our shopping and let's <laughs> let's put on our orthopedic shoes and get out there. And I was like, that is that. Oh my god, if that's not us, then I'm. We gonna are be. gonna be those like old ladies that just like walk around the mall in their shape ups. Yes, that's gonna be a thing. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Sure. I mean, at the end of my pregnancy, I was already that lady walking around the mall, just trying to get him to come out. <laughs> like, hello. My mom was like, "We're walking laps." <laughs> we're walking laps but yeah. nothing worked he just was very content yeah in there he had to get served an eviction notice yeah which wow. he was not happy about wow. yeah he was a <laughs> he was not a fan he wanted to stay in there forever i probably would too if i had like a conscious being like i mean think about it you're you know? like safe you're warm you have everything you need delivered yeah. directly to you you don't Why want you for leave? anything like yeah yeah i mean 
I get it. Yeah, for sure. I totally get it. Yeah. And then someone just comes and yanks you out. Yanks you. Well, either yanks you out or you have to go down a tiny ass little tube. Yeah. Oof. Both of those things sound horrible. Yeah. I feel like that's why we have no memory. Yeah. Of that experience. It's probably very traumatic at the time. I, it's interesting from my perspective, like as a mother, I really don't, I I have, um, like I have memories of it, but Mm -hmm. I also have disconnected from it in a way. Mm -hmm. Like I, like I, I, I know that I had a lot of pain. I know that I had all of these things happen, but I can't like recall exactly Mm -hmm. what that felt like. And I feel like our bodies do that biologically and our, our brains do that biologically. Otherwise we would never have children. Yeah. Like ever again. Nobody right. would, if nobody like would reproduce if they like completely remember remembered every single detail. You'd be like, I'm never doing that. Like I know I had a C-section and I mm-hmm. know that the next day when I had to get up and walk after 12 hours, mm-hmm. you know, cause 12 hours is they're like, all right, get up and walk. Yeah. And I, I, I remember literally feeling my organs like splooshing inside of me. Like, I know that that happened, but I can't recall what that felt like. Right. I just know it hurt, like, Which is so wild to me. I will never get over it. I will never get over the fact that they just put your organs back in no particular order. And your body just figures out where it goes. Mm -hmm. That blows And you can feel it. Like, you can feel things... The human body is an amazing place. I just find that interesting that, like, your body knows where everything goes automatically. It was interesting. That's a couple crazy. weeks ago, I was I was pumping and I felt something move, and I was like, "Oh, I guess something's not back where it's supposed, it's supposed to, to be." Yet. And I was <laughs> like, "Well, <laughs> there that goes." That's there. So wild. I know. I know. It's it's a nuts experience. Yeah. But I'm uh, I'm good to hear about it from. A, <laughs> a, a I'm glad I went through it. <laughs> yeah. Because Kate is just. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've you've met him. Yeah, he's pretty cute. He's a pretty great little baby. He's a pretty great Yeah, he was at... So, <laughs> Melinda and our friend Kara, they were over the other night. We tried to do a girls' night, like, once a week. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, you got to have your people that you can, like, vent and just sit on your couch and sweats and yeah. talk to. And uh, I was doing something. I can't remember what I was doing. But Melinda and Kara had Cade, and he was getting fussy. And so, Melinda, how did you calm my baby <laughs> down? What did you do? I wrapped a couple verses from 8 Mile. <laughs> and uh, the funny part is it worked. Yeah, he was having a great time. It like He was like, oh, yes. He's like, I like this. He was like, they like had him kind of standing up and he was like yeah. bobbing his little butt he was, along. Like, wiggling. Uh, I feel like we should get started on the episode. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we just, we've missed, it's funny because like we haven't recorded since April, but we have been mm-hmm. together at least once a week. Yeah, pretty much. Like, because I mean, you you met Cade like days after he was born. Yeah, he was like four days old. Yeah, so I mean, you <laughs> met him probably I think like the first day we were home. Like, yeah, you you met him. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have been together, mm-hmm. but we have not been with you guys. So we're excited yeah. to be back, and we're gonna jump right in. So this yeah. episode is really exciting because you all are getting a two-for-one deal today. In order to talk about Andre de Young, we have to also talk about Edith Cavill. So this episode is a two-parter. It's our first two-part episode, which I'm really excited about. So Mel, let's get started. Can you please give us our three facts about Andre de Young? Yes. Number one, Andre's nickname was Didi, which is what the soldiers she saved called her. Didi means little mother. That's cute. Uh, number two is the novel The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, 
while a historical fiction novel is based on Dee Dee's escape route used during World War II called The Comet Line. It's a really good book if you haven't read yeah, it. Yeah, I that sounds really good. Ten out of ten. I actually love books that are based off of hit, like I guess they call them historical fiction. I think is the genre. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I was reading so I when I was doing my research on Dee Dee, mm-hmm. I was reading her story and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is so similar to that book I read, The mm-hmm. Nightingale. And then I looked it up and I was like, like oh. I was like, hot damn, we're connected. <laughs> it's the same. And then the third fact, um, she has won numerous awards, including the Medal of Freedom, the George Medal, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the World War II, what is that? Croix de... I would say Croix de Guerre. Sure. Mm-hmm. So throughout the episode, I'll be referring to Andre as Didi, since that is what the men she helped knew her as, and she did help some women too. Anyway, finding information about her early life has been tough. There's not really a whole lot out there. If I had hours and hours to do research and like dig through resources, mm-hmm. I could probably find stuff. Um, but you know, I'm a mom now, so I'm a little bit more limited <laughs> in my time. So I'm going to give you what I have. Uh, so Didi was born in Schaubeck. Belgium on November 30th, 1916. Her father was Friedrich, a headmaster, and her mother was named Alice. I couldn't find anything else about her mother. Mm. Um, so I'm just going to assume she was a housewife. Probably. And that's my assumption. Sure. Growing up, Dee Dee idolized Edith Cavill, who is another woman we have to talk about. First, because she's incredible, and second, because her story ties directly into Dee Dee's. So here's your two-for-one True Girls episode We're going to do a deep dive on Edith Cavill. So, Melinda, could you hit us with our three facts about Edith? My pleasure. Number one, she was a British nurse during World War I. Cool. Uh, Number two, before serving as a nurse, she was a governess. She was a governess. Like Maria. Maria von Trapp. (laughs) Um, And then number three, Edith died the year after Dee Dee was born. Mm-hmm. Born on December 4th, 1865 in Swartiston, Norfolk, Edith Louisa Cavill was the daughter of a rector. A rector is like a pastor in the Episcopal Church, so religion was a really important part of her life growing up. Edith had four younger siblings who were named Florence, Mary, and John, and Edith's family didn't have a lot of money. Her father was poor, but every Sunday the family hosted a lunch for the parishioners at her father's church, which when you hear about her later life, it makes sense that she was so generous considering, you know, how her, how her family was. Mm -hmm. Sundays were boring for Edith. She described her father's sermons as quote, long and dull end quote. And the only book she was allowed to read on Sundays was the Bible. Other than Sundays, her childhood was a bright and happy one. Edith drew, she painted flowers, and then in the winter, she absolutely loved to ice skate. Neighbors would later recount seeing Edith skating just for hours. So Edith's childhood was picturesque in many ways. Edith was a smart and strong-willed child, and one of my favorite stories about her childhood is uh, Edith knew that her father's church needed a new room for Sunday school, and so she wrote to the bishop in the Episcopal Church, you know, like the head honcho, Mm -hmm. and he said the church would only pay for it if she raised some of the money. So Edith raised the money by selling her paintings, and she sent the money to the bishop and was like, all right. I held up my end. Now it's your turn, bro. (laughs) And so the church built the room for her father. And that church now has a memorial to Edith located in the church. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. That's really neat that it, it, she stood the test of time. Especially like 
doing that as a child. You right. know what I mean? Like, she was a very strong-willed, smart, mm-hmm. smart kid. Well, the fact that they, like, so, obviously it wasn't, you know, named or memorialized to her until after, like, when she was much older. So to have that lasting of an impact, mm-hmm. you know, to get something after the fact named after you is pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Especially when this all happened when she was a child. So it's, like, not like it was fresh in anyone's mind, you know? Yeah. So, beginning in 1890, when Edith was around 25 years old, she began working as a governess in Brussels. In her spare time, she would continue to paint and would also play tennis and go dancing. And I read somewhere that she loved dancing so much she would dance until her feet bled like she didn't care. She just danced, danced, danced. The children she cared for remembered her as being kind and always smiling. And for a brief moment, Edith fell in love with her second cousin, Eddie Cavill, but they never married because Eddie had a, quote, nervous condition, end quote, that made him feel he should never marry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's okay, a cop bro. out. <laughs> yeah, right? He just didn't want to get a nervous condition. <laughs> so by all accounts, Edith was a lovely governess, and she was remembered very affectionately by all the children she worked with. So how did Edith get into nursing if she was such a successful governess? So in 1895, Edith returned to her hometown of Swarsdiston because her father was sick and she nursed her father back to health. And historians say that this act of nursing her father back to health is what inspired her to become a nurse. In 1896, Edith began working at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, training to become a nurse. Uh, Fun fact, she was trained by a matron, Ava Lukes, who was a friend of Florence Nightingale. And I love this. Ava would say about Edith, quote, Edith Louisa Cavill had plenty of capacity for her work when she chose to exert herself, mm-hmm. end quote, and that, quote, she was not punctual at all, end quote. <laughs> That's kind of funny. In 1897, there was an epidemic of typhoid fever in Maidstone, and Edith was one of the nurses sent to help. Out of the 1,700 people who had contracted to the, the disease, only 132 died. And so Edith was honored with the Maidstone Medal for her work during the epidemic. Her nurse training was completed in 1898. And from there, Edith worked in multiple British hospitals, seeing a diverse array of cases. In 1907, Edith returned to Brussels to nurse a sick child. Um, there was a doctor or a professor or someone she had worked with, like, was like, hey, I have this mm-hmm. sick child. Will you come take care of him? And Edith was like, Okay. And then from there, she became matron of the first nursing school in Belgium, the École Belge des Infirmières Diplômées. Edith was really successful running this school. Though she herself, as we know, was not known for being on time when she was a student, (laughs) she absolutely expected it from her students. (laughs) For every minute a student was late, they would have to volunteer the equivalent hours in their spare time. So if a student was five minutes late, they would have to give up five hours of their free time. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's hardcore. It reminds me, um, when I was a soccer coach, if... Mm-hmm. So, we had a problem. It was me and my friend, Lauren. We had a problem where the girls were not showing up on time. And, like, mm-hmm. no matter how we encouraged them, they weren't showing up on time. So, we finally said, okay, for every minute you're late, that's a lap you'll run around the complex. Not the field. Mm-hmm. The complex. So each lap is like three quarters of a mile. Like mm-hmm. it's a long, it's a long lap. After that, all the girls showed up on time. Uh-huh. Except for one. Mm. She was seven minutes late. Darn that. 
And so we made her run seven laps. Did she vomit? Uh, no, but her <laughs> dad called me like oh. so mad. And do you know why she was late? Um, she was making out with her boyfriend under the bleachers. She was indeed. <laughs> she was indeed. And I mean, I told the dad that I was like, she knew the consequences. I watched right. her make this decision. I knew what was happening, mm-hmm. you know? And he was like, oh. And she was never it's late fun. again. So. Yeah, I would, I, if I had to run, well, first of all, I don't run. But if I had to run laps, I would never be late. I mean, I'm punctual anyway, but. You are. You're very punctual. So back to Edith. Mm-hmm. Nursing did not have a very strong reputation at this time. And women from the middle classes were not encouraged to pursue it. Edith wrote home saying, the old idea that it is a disgrace for women to work is still held in Belgium, and women of good birth and education still think they lose caste by earning their own living. Now, all of this changed when the Queen of the Belgians, what I think is interesting is they're not referred to, like, the Queen of Belgium or, like, the King of Belgium. Mm-hmm. It's the Queen of the Belgians. Right. And like the King of the, of the Belgians. Yeah, it's really interesting. It is interesting. To the queen of the Belgians, she broke her arm and asked for a student from the school to treat her. Boom. Instant credibility and popularity. By the year 1912, Edith was sending her students to three hospitals, 24 communal schools, and 13 kindergartens. By 1914, so two years later, she was doing four lectures a week for both doctors and nurses, all while caring for her friend's daughter who was addicted to morphine. Oh. I feel like even without her heroism during World War One, this is... Impressive enough to do an episode on. Yeah, I could not imagine. Because she took nursing and elevated it and made mm-hmm. it a legitimate career for, for women to pursue. And set a precedent that women could earn a living for themselves. Right. while also watching a child. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What really skyrocketed Edith into the international eye was her bravery during World War One. Edith was pulling weeds in her mother's garden when she heard the news that Germany had invaded Belgium. Upon hearing about the invasion, Edith is quoted as saying, at a time like this, I am more needed than ever. And so Edith left Britain and headed to Brussels. In Brussels, she began sending German and Belgian nurses home, reminding them that it was their duty to care for the wounded, no matter what their nationality was. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like even now, even if you're just like a nurse and you're walking out, around the world, like, technically, you're, like, legally obligated to help someone if they're injured or sick or something. So, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yep. And to me, it also, again, speaks to her character. Right. Like, it doesn't matter. Your job is to help. Right. Edith's clinic became a Red Cross hospital, and when Brussels fell to the Germans, 60 British nurses were sent home. But Edith remained, along with her assistant, Miss Wilkins, Because she worked for the Red Cross, Edith was protected in providing aid to soldiers from any nationality. However, what she was not protected in was smuggling Allied soldiers to safety. And that is just what Edith did. This is getting exciting, folks. I know. It's getting fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting fun. In 1914, two wounded British soldiers stumbled across Edith's clinic. She took them in and after two weeks smuggled them to safety. Soon others began following and Edith would hide them, heal them, and help them safely escape to the neutral territory of Holland. 
An underground network was established with the supervision of the Prince and Princess de Croix that lasted more than a year. A guy named Philippe Bach, you'll hear about him a little bit later, helped to guide the Allied soldiers to safety. Everyone involved knew that the penalty for hiding Allied soldiers was to be shot, but they all did it anyway. Love it. Edith did an incredible job harboring these soldiers. She kept her diary detailing the soldiers and their movements sewn into a couch cushion, and she made sure her nurses knew nothing so they could never be charged in case she was discovered. And even though the clinic had been searched, no evidence of her wrongdoings was ever found. Oh, she's, she's a sneaky little she's snake. She's a sneaky little snake. <laughs> so it sounds like her story has a happy ending since she was so careful. Huh? It does. Yay. But unfortunately, oh. on July 31st, 1915, two members of the escape route were captured. Soon after, Edith mm-hmm. was taken in as a political prisoner, and this next part really breaks my heart. So during her interrogation, Edith was told the other prisoners had confessed everything. Ugh, I hate that. Believing her interrogators, Edith told them everything. Edith and four others, including Philip Bach, who was the guide, were sentenced to death. Edith was to die by firing squad. In a hurry to get her execution over with, it was decided that Edith would die the next day after her sentencing which would be October 12th, 1915. So Edith had been interned for almost 10 weeks. An English chaplain named Sterling Gahan was allowed to visit her the night before her execution. According to him, after receiving the sacrament, Edith said, quote, I am thankful to have had these 10 weeks of quiet to get ready. Now I have had them and have been kindly treated here. I expected my sentence and I believe it was just. Standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone, end quote. Mm. I wish um, more people were like that, including myself. <laughs> like, like homegirl is about to die, and yeah. she's still like, I'm not bitter. Yeah. I've forgiven everyone involved. This is what it is. She also says, I understand. Like I, I understand. Like, I'm yes. Like, I don't understand. She's like, I... <laughs> She's like, I knew what I was doing when I did it, and I knew that this was the punishment, and I mm-hmm. got caught. Like, she's like, yep. It's true. Even though the punishment is clearly wrong. She's like, yep, I expected this. Like, this is what yeah. I knew you know, was going to happen. Caught. So early in the morning of October 12th, Edith was brought before the firing squad. The American and Spanish embassies tried to intervene on her behalf, but with no luck. Now, there are conflicting reports about this execution. Some say it was carried out without any complications, Others say that one firing squad refused to participate, throwing down their guns. Um, there was one that said that Edith passed out, like like all the soldiers fired around her, and she mm-hmm. passed out. And so then someone like walked up and like mm-hmm. executed her while mm-hmm. she was passed out on the ground. One private Rimmel is rumored to have refused to shoot Edith and was then shot by a commanding German soldier for his refusal to I mean, obey orders. Regardless of how it happened. Edith's death made her a martyr for the Allied movement. Her death was used in propaganda for the Allied forces, which is actually something Edith didn't want. Mm -hmm. She's quoted as saying she wanted to be remembered as, quote, a nurse who tried to do her duty, end quote. After her death, the propaganda caused recruiting numbers to double for eight weeks. Yeah. So clearly. Yeah. I know it's like (laughs) something she didn't want, but, you know. Sometimes it's, like, at the end of the day, like, I mean, what, what, what were they going to do? Exactly. You know? Like, especially when it did double. Yep. 
Edith died with forgiveness in her heart for the people she saved hundreds of men from. Her legacy lasts to this day as services are still held every year to honor her death. And there are monuments and tributes to her throughout Europe. And that is the life of Edith Cavill. Our next episode will pick up with the rest of Andresion's story. And it's one that seems to mirror Edith's. Stay true. I know, it's so nice. Our sources for the French Comet Part 1 are edithcavill.org and who is Edith Cavill from the Imperial Warms Museum.